0: Welcome to episode 211 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you. There's
0: nothing in this world I do. Hey, brother. Hey, oh, brother. So I have to say this to start off with, and I know we try to be more sensitive to not make an episode something of the weather cast or the reformed weather cast. But Truth. is there really any better season than the autumn? I don't want to say the fall because we don't want to misappropriate that term and make people feel like we're celebrating yeah. the sinfulness of mankind.
1: I wish that I could uh, speak from experience, but this year we've jumped straight to winter already <laughs> in New Hampshire. Uh, Friday, we ended up with like three inches of snow that still has not fully melted yet. So I woke up on Saturday morning, it was like 14 degrees out. So we went straight to, we went
0: straight to winter. It's possible that people who are listening to this don't understand that concept. There are literally parts of the country where you move basically right from summer into winter. And that sounds crazy, but I received several images both from your wife and my mother of this snowfall. It looked glorious. Like it looked pretty. But the question is, do you want to have four inches of snow in October? Is that your jam?
1: No, because it's not just four inches of snow, but it's four inches of snow on top of two inches of leaves. (laughs) So which which results in six inches of mud uh, when it comes to springtime.
0: I love this. It's like a there's basically a grand algorithm or a formula to break yeah. all
1: this down. That's New you, Hampshire math right there.
0: Listen, I want to say, I want to affirm you before we even get to affirmations and denials, because oh, I think it's possible you have crossed into like firmly understanding all things New Hampshire. The way that you just broke that down, that's a New Hampshire thing to say. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. You are yeah. fully New Hampshire indoctrinated.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I, somebody mentioned mud season when I first got here and I was like, I, what is, what is this mud season? And now, now I know what mud season is. It's bad.
0: That's a whole legit thing. Like the fact of the matter is many places in New Hampshire have either dirt roads or dirt driveways. So it's not just this ambiguous concept or it's like totally enigmatic or theoretical you're concerned about the mud season because you know, you're going to track all that dirt into your house. So you need to figure out how are you going to create some kind of reasonable barrier to prevent having to clean your floors all the time or your carpets all the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also you've good luck moving your car at certain times of the year because it's like quicksand out there. I saw, I saw a meme one time that said something along the lines of like, when I was a kid, I thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem than it is. And that's true. Quicksand is actually not that big of a deal. But mud season is a big deal. And I feel like you're more likely to get stuck in mud and die than you are in quicksand.
0: That's fair. I one time got a Ford Escort stuck in the mud during mud season. I was trying to go up a mountain, a cardigan mountain, actually, if anybody's familiar. Oh, yeah. Just to get to the, the, the base point where you could go up to the trail. And it was just a particularly bad part of the year it, and it wasn't so maybe people think that like you get a lot of rain we're talking about like snow melting right in the spring there's so much snow that it literally makes everything so wet the ground like the water table is so high that you just literally bury your car in the mud by trying to drive it that's all that we're talking about
1: yeah, you know those um, those like museum exhibits where it shows like a brontosaurus sinking in the tar, and like that's it that explains how <laughs> fossilization happens. Yes, that's like real life in New Hampshire during mud season. Is like if you're not careful, you're going to be found in like a million years by archaeologists. They're going to be like, "This is a Fortis exploricus. It's a special species of car."
0: That's great. That's fantastic. I hope everybody who's listening to this comes to visit new visits, New Hampshire, because I think it has a a special place in both our hearts, but it's like a foreign country, even if you're in the United States, it's true. It's true. I'm not sure
1: why anyone would come visit New Hampshire after that (laughs) description. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Minneapolis, so I was kind of a city kid. So we, we didn't have a lot of dirt roads and stuff. So coming here, mud season was totally foreign to me. And then all of a sudden I get here and it was like, you can literally like step outside. You'll sink in into like two inches of, of mud outside your house. If you have like a dirt parking lot or driveway, it's pretty bad. Yeah,
0: it's legit. It's a totally different world. So let's do a little affirmations and denials. That was like pure bonus. Like we often say the price of admission for us is you get us for free. And right. so that was like totally free of charge. It's but true. Would you like to kick us off with a little affirmation action?
1: Yeah. So it's it's politics season, and this might be not the most timely affirmation in the world because not only will the presidential election have been concluded, although we may not have any idea who actually won yet, but will be concluded by the time you hear this since it comes out the day after uh, election day. And also the Supreme Court has now been confirmed with a sixth Three conservative majority, but I'm affirming a book by Ted Cruz called One Vote Away. Interesting. This book uh, is basically so Ted Cruz, who is a senator from Texas, former presidential candidate, um, he has a podcast called The Verdict, which I actually highly recommend. It's very useful in terms of understanding what's going on in politics, particularly in the Senate, since that's where he is. But the book basically goes through several significant decisions, uh, Supreme Court decisions, all of which he was actually involved in as a litigator when he was a uh, when he was I think he was the solicitor general for Texas before he joined the Senate. So he has intimate, direct legal knowledge and expertise on all these cases. And each of them, he explains basically what the terms and the issues in the case were and how uh, the vote was by a narrow majority of five to four and what the consequences of the vote going the other direction could have been. And so the, the, the premise of the book is he's trying to convince you to elect conservative presidents who will nominate Uh, And then presumably get confirmed to the court uh, originalist or textualist, uh, which is not the same thing, but originalist or textualist um, justices to the Supreme Court. So right now it's kind of a moot point because, you know, like we won't have another presidential election for four years and presumably we won't have any Supreme Court nominees, uh, hopefully for the next four years that are questionable. Um, but it's a, it's an excellent book. I listened to it on audiobook. It's very, very much a book you can listen to. There's not a lot of technical jargon. Um, you could read it as well, obviously, but it's called One Vote Away by Ted Cruz. And I, I really enjoyed
0: it. I learned a lot. Here's what's crazy about this. I'm looking at this book on goodreads.com. It's rated 4.61 stars out of five. That's a really high rating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's It's an exceptionally good book, I thought. And you know, he's, he is one of those people that has a very clear perspective, but he also recognizes his own biases. So I think he he presents, uh, in many cases, he presents the other argument, I think, in a fair way. I mean, I'm not a legal scholar, so I guess I don't know, but he presents things in a fair way where he he's able to say, like, well, here's the argument that the other side made um, and not just treat them like they're idiots or demonize them. You know, he right. presents it in a fair way, Presents presents kind of the best form of their argument that he can. Uh, but the book is obviously intended to convince you of a particular view so he's not he's not shy about what he thinks is the right way to go, which I actually think is a good a good mark of a good author that they can present the other view while still making a compelling argument for their own view which obviously like he's learned that as a lawyer he has to make you know strategic right. decisions about how he presents certain things so and it was interesting too to sort of hear the inside machinations of like legal decisions and, you know, um, certain kinds of, uh, decisions that were handed down by certain court justices that were basically like, we don't want to, I don't want to have this be the precedent. So even though I might not personally agree with the outcome, I'm still going to side with this majority. Um, there was a lot of kind of inside baseball, uh, in the book that was nice to sort of bring out. And I thought learn about in the public, but also just as a side affirmation, his podcast verdict is, I think is very good. It's, it's a, Um, it's a little bit more rambunctious than the book is, but, um, Ted Cruz just has a really fun wins and personality too. I mean, he's kind of like a good old boy, Texas guy. Who's, who's a little gruff around the edges sometimes, but, um, but generally just a good dude.
0: Right. So he has a killer beard. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Here's why I like this affirmation. Uh, I'm going to add to that, the killer beard. But the second thing is that I think this is a really good affirmation because it's a little bit off the beaten path. Right. We should be listening to this type of stuff. I think it's helpful to understand this kind of thing. And apparently this book does a really good job of introducing many of the concepts yes. that you're kind of promulgating here. So if you know nothing about it, it seems like somehow I've adopted this affirmation at this point. That's it seems okay. like this is like a really good thing to read because it'll get you exposed to something that you might not be exposed to before. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think I've learned a lot about the Supreme Court in this last sort of like barrage of things going on with Justice Barrett um, or Justice Coney Barrett. Um, But I I think this is a really good primer to how the Supreme Court works. There's also a podcast that uh, recently came out called Legal Docket, which is actually a Christian podcast that kind of goes into some of this stuff as well from a different perspective. But, you know, the Supreme Court is really it's more important than it was ever intended to be, but it still is very important in our in right. our democratic system or our constitutional republic. Um, and I think, you know, as much as the world, the, the the democratic world is kind of freaking out about Justice Barrett, I think having. um people who are going to respect the original and, you know, the original context and and content of the constitution, I think can only benefit the country, um, which of course we're a conservative block. So of course we're going to think that way. And I recognize not everyone does, but, um, I'm just, I, I thought it was a great way to learn about kind of what goes on in the Supreme court and how it works and who, who the justices are. It was just a very good treatment of the subject.
0: Yeah. That's well done. That's a great affirmation, man. You're like, listen, I never know where you're going to go. Even though I know you, I never know where you're going to go.
1: Well, you know, I try to keep you on your toes. (laughs) What about you? What are you affirming today?
0: Totally unexpected. So mine is a little bit more expected, but I will say this. You used a phrase that I literally, like days ahead of time, when I thought about, sometimes during the week, I try to think about, so I'm not caught off guard, what I want to affirm. I thought about the thing I wanted to affirm and I thought about a phrase that I wanted to use. And I'm not joking. You just use that phrase and I'm totally shocked yeah. that you use that phrase. Do you know what it was?
1: No, I used a lot of phrases.
0: Yeah. Okay. It was great. So in making my affirmation, I was going to use the phrase, this is inside baseball. Oh yeah. And this is inside baseball for us. So what I'm affirming this week is sometimes people ask us, And by people, I mean, there was one time and it was one person, but they sometimes ask us like what kind of equipment we use, like for recording or for listening. And so one of the things that I use when we record or when I play in church is I use something that's called like inner ears or isolating earphones. It's kind of like more fancy, maybe earbuds, but I'm affirming with something called, it's a brand called Sure S-H-U-R-E. And this particular model is 215-CL. They're marketed as professional sound isolating earphones. But the thing about these is it's kind of like your version of earbuds, a little bit souped up, but they're what we call like a neutral sound. So like what you get in these is like purely what things sound as they're going through like a sound system. So they're not over-engineered. You're not going to get like a lot of bass. You'll get the appropriate amount of bass that's going through your system. So... These are a little bit more on the expensive side, so we're being like a little bit nuanced. They're normally, I think, like $99. I see they're selling on Amazon right now for $78. But if you want something that's like a little bit above and beyond, like the normal set of earbuds, something that gives you like a real sense of what music sounds like, to me, the Shure 215s provide like the most exceptional experience for music because they're super balanced and they're, like I said, what we call neutral. So the inside baseball is this is what I use when we record. And I must say in these earbuds, your voice sounds glorious. (laughs) It sounds like it sounds mellifluous. And it sounds like to me, what I hear when you and I are talking in person, which I think is just more a testimony to like the technology. But if, if you're looking, these are, these are the wired version. I like these the best, but I use them when we record. I use them at church when I play. And so if you're an audiophile and you would like to get maybe a better sense of what music actually sounds like, or as it was originally mixed, the Shore 215s are fantastic and I'm affirming them.
1: Yeah. What a lot of people don't realize and you learn, I've... I would be having a little bit of a self inflation if I called myself an audio engineer based on what I do with the podcast. But what you learn when you're doing any sort of audio engineering is little tricks to make things sound better and to sort of cover up issues. And one of the ways you do that is you up the treble and you down the bass, like the really (laughs) low frequencies, you cut those out and sort of the mid frequencies, you maybe peak a little bit, but you crank up the treble and it makes everything sound really crisp. And so a lot of um, like market headphones, like if you buy a pair of like skull candy cheap headphones like the $15 ones the headphones themselves actually do that because it can cover up some of their infirmities in the headphones by sort of like lowering out those lower frequencies that sound kind of kind of gross anyways so you're not actually getting a, a real a real sound of what it is that was recorded with, with most headphones. The same is true. If you're listening to something over Bluetooth, a lot of times those low frequencies get pulled out. Um, So a pair of headphones like this, like you're describing can really help you. uh, You know, if you're listening to something that has a really wide range of sound, Um, if you're watching like a movie or something that uh, was really designed to be immersive, um, something like this would really help.
0: Yeah, it's it, again, I totally admit that this is a bit of a niche thing. But if you're looking for maybe like that new set of headphones, the short 215s are really great. Or if you play music, I think they're absolutely fantastic. Or if you're just curious uh, what it sounds like when it's a little bit different or let's say like more focused, this would be an interesting set of headphones. So yeah. I, I highly recommend them. They're not for everybody. And maybe there's a lot of people that are like, listen, I have an iPhone. I got a, a set of earbuds that came with it. That's totally fine too. There's yeah. no judgment here. They're just a really nice set. And they're unique because, so you're rocking a set of inner ears right now. And yes. one of the things about the inner ears is they, they're not like noise canceling, but they tend to, they have a very snug fit, a different type of fit. Right. And tr- their purpose is to like push out other exogenous sound.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the ones I have were less expensive. I think I paid like thirty or forty dollars for them. Um, but they're good. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great, that's a great affirmation. I think like for someone who, You know, like if you like when I take my lunch break at work, the place that I have to sit is very noisy. So if I want to listen to a lecture or watch a TV show or listen to some music, a lot of times, like your standard kind of headphones, they don't block out enough sound. So I'm kind of like always training to hear what's going on, especially if it's like a show where there's a lot of like quiet moments and you're listening to like background noise and stuff. Um, So something like, like what you're describing or what I have will cancel out most of that, mostly just because physically it actually blocks the sound yes. from coming into your ear. Right, It's not the same. And you know, the ones I have are clear. So they're very much, you very much don't see them. Um, they don't look quite as like weird as if you are wearing like the big, like <laughs> DJ style <laughs> headphones that like make you look like you're coming straight out of like the eighties.
0: Right. Yeah. Like you're Sir Mix-a-Lot and you're trying to like right, exactly. put together like a whole jam. Yeah, I get that. So at the risk of like, Completely overstating this and moving it in a direction that's well beyond or far afield of where we intended. This is like my day on the Lord's Day. Is I generally wake up a little bit earlier than my wife because I need to be at church a little bit earlier to practice music, and so I end up throwing in some earbuds because I just love starting the Lord's Day with worship, and so I I drop these suckers in while I'm ironing. That's my tradition. <laughs> it's like by the time I'm done. And making my shirt super crisp. I am so excited for what's happening on the Lord's Day because I'm just blocked out everything else, and I'm listening to like exceptional music with these headphones. So if that's encouragement to anybody, I I would say go and get some head, good, really good headphones. And maybe that's like a a bonus affirmation. Start your Lord's Day off with some music that is explicitly. Yeah focused on worshiping God, you will not be disappointed in that. And in particular, if you have a nice set of earphones, it's true. It's true. Yeah. All right. So let's do denials. What do you got?
1: So every year, this time of year, something happens on the internet that I have to speak against. So just this it time is of year. no. Yeah. Well, specific <laughs> to this time of year, specifically okay. this time of year, uh, there's something that Doug Wilson does called No Quarter November, oh, and that's right. so there's something that I want to point out this year when I I deny this. So my denial is No Quarter November, and more broadly, I guess just a denial of Doug Wilson and his whole shtick. And, and so here's here's what Doug Wilson says about no. I almost keep keep almost saying No Shave November, which is a different thing. Oh, um, that would be better. I just do no shave all the time, so it, that doesn't yes. make any sense But uh, no quarter November, basically Doug Wilson says most of the time he writes what he calls the second paragraph. And the second paragraph for him is where he makes a qualification that basically explains why you shouldn't be offended about the really stupid, offensive thing he said in the first paragraph. So this is his own words, just because I want to make sure people don't think I'm totally mischaracterizing this. He says this was in his blog, uh, which came out seven hours ago. Uh, on November 1st and he says from time to time here at my blog, which is the name of, of his blog. I have said certain things that might ruffle a feather or two mindful of my responsibilities in such cases, Which, side note, his responsibility would actually be to speak clearly and non-inflammatorily and be of good repute among outsiders. That's part of the qualifications for elders. But that's a side note. Mindful, quote, mindful of my responsibilities in such cases, I try to make it my usual custom to anticipate any objection and concern that may arise, and I don't do so through what we might call my second paragraph rule. Somewhere early on in in the offending post, I will say something that will hedge my supposed outrageous sentiment around with qualifications and other forms of oliginous balance. For example, Ooh. I will say something like, please don't read this as arguing that all women are fat or something equally soothing, right? Wow. So, so what Doug Wilson's saying here is that he writes an article, he recognizes that it's going to piss people off, uh, but because he has this second paragraph rule where he explains why people shouldn't be mad at the outrageous thing he says... Uh, it's okay, and so during no quarter November, he says, and I'm quoting here again: once a year, throughout the month of November, I do my level best to leave all those qualifications completely out of it. So more or less, what Doug Wilson's saying is that although he says inflammatory things all year round, he qualifies them. So you're really you're being unreasonable if you're actually right. offended by the offensive <laughs> thing he says. But in November, he's not going to make all those qualifications. So he's not explaining why you shouldn't be offended. So really, he's just saying, like, in November, you're going to be offended and you're just going to have to deal with it. And somehow this is beneficial. And maybe this is immature of me, but I like to call November. Don't be a butt pirate November. (laughs) Because Doug Wilson's stick, <laughs> for some reason, is that in November, he's like a pirate, and he's basically like pillaging common sense, and I don't know what he's trying to do, but he's... Where, where like does, the symbol of November for him is a Jolly Roger, like a skull and crossbones.
0: Where does the butt come from? I,
1: I don't know. It's just a phrase that I like. It's probably actually really bad, and I shouldn't say it now that I think about it, but in in general... If you write something online and you consistently have to include qualifications that explain why people should not be offended by the offensive thing you're saying, then just don't say it, right? Amen. Um, You know, one of the qualifications for elder is that you are not a striker or you're not pugnacious. You're not eager to quarrel with people. Well, the fact that Doug Wilson has a rule about his writing that he has to explain why you should not be offended by the thing he says. And if you look at it, even the example that he uses, and he's doing this tongue in cheek, but I think it says something. Even the example, please don't read this as arguing all women are fat. What could that possibly qualify except some statements that otherwise – otherwise implies that all women are fat so exactly. even the example he's using is basically he uses this as an excuse to say yeah i say really offensive things but if you read carefully with my qualifications they're not really offensive right. it would be like if i said you know jesse uh, have you stopped beating your wife yet i mean i don't mean to imply that you beat your wife but have you stopped beating your wife right. yet like that that's basically the character and nature of most of his posts that he has yeah. to qualify so i'm denying doug wilson i'm denying this approach that he has where he thinks he he can say offensive things and then qualify them out of being offensive and i'm especially denying this weird time of year where he thinks it's okay to just be offensive without qualification
0: how is that not a super weird thing can we just acknowledge this a super weird thing like so aside from what you're saying about like the responsibility that i believe i agree with you that he has to be articulate and to not like emotionalize or say something that's purposefully inflammatory and then to come down off that inflammation by saying here's why you shouldn't be Can we just acknowledge it's a super weird thing to celebrate a particular month of the year where you don't have to provide qualification? Isn't that weird by itself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't get it. Honestly, I think it's, you know, Doug Wilson has a particular demographic that thinks that it's not only okay but it's really, really great to offend people and to be to be like aggressive and to like, yeah, if you take people off, then like you're doing, you must be doing something right. It's a because, badge of honor. Right. Because the gospel's offensive. And, and yes. really what it is, is it's like, you no, you're offensive. You're, you're the jerk. And that has nothing to do with the gospel. And, um, I think, you know, this is actually more along the lines of like, there are certain quarters of his fan base that actually think maybe he, he's too soft on some things. And so he uses November as an excuse to like, just go all out and, and not, not restrain himself at all. As though exercising self-control is somehow not a Christian thing to do when actually it's like definitive of being a Christian is one of the fruit of the spirit. So yeah. Yeah, So I'm just denying the whole enterprise, the whole, the whole thing. Like Doug Wilson needs to just like step back, realize like being offensive is not in and of itself a virtue If if you have to have a rule about qualifying your offensive statements, then maybe you should just stop writing and stop being (laughs) offensive. So I'm denying no quarter November uh, and
0: Doug Wilson's sort of whole program. Well, I'm pretty sure we've done that thing again, which we never intended to do, which was to make probably most or half of this episode (laughs) affirmation denial. So I'm going to make it really quick and really clean for my denial, which is, in the U S at least we're on the cusp of an election. And so all I want to deny against is Christians. I would say being un- inappropriately concerned about the outcome. Jesus Trump's the president. end of denial. So let's talk about
1: <laughs> that was an interesting choice of words. Jesse did, is that a Freudian slip there? Jesus Trump's the president.
0: Oh man! Actually, I didn't even think about that. that. That was not necessarily what I was saying. But I, I think that uh, yeah, I'm, I'm agnostic to. So yeah, let's just move on, shall we? I'm agnostic. I think that uh, uh, God is in control, and and as Christians, we should just relish that fact. Like we should lean into that really hardcore. Yes. And understand that the sovereignty of God is this wonderful, comfortable blanket, this warm cocoon, so to speak. That. Doesn't absolve us from responsibility, but does leave us with a sense of overwhelming peace that he's working out his will. And especially for Christians, all things work for good. So yes. I think that that's something that we also put more of our weight in than being hyper-concerned with what's going on, but of course I'm not removing responsibility for action. So with that said, can I move on? Is that cool? Are you yes, aware of that?
1: I'll okay. allow it. Oh, there's a motion on the floor and I'll second it.
0: So. I appreciate that. Yes. And the, the vote, because you're the only other person has been overwhelming majority <laughs> to move forward. So we're, we're doing, this epi- doing this episode. We're definitely doing this episode, but we're doing a whole series on communion. And we now we've reached the point of what I would classify as memorialism and trying to describe what the Lord's Supper means, but we're in some ways like appropriating the champion of this particular worldview, which is Ulrich Zwingli, who, I mean, among reformers has like perhaps the most super sweet name. Would you agree?
1: Yeah. I think Heinrich Bollinger is a pretty cool name too.
0: I mean, that's, that's good, but Zwingli, like that's just like, that's metal. Like it sounds hardcore.
1: Yeah, I feel like I want to make a joke call out his name and be like, more like Zingly. Like Zing. (laughs) fair enough. Well, I'll uh, leave the puns and dad jokes. So yeah. Just listen, I'm actually guy. embarrassed
0: that I laughed in kind of a high-pitched way when you said <laughs> that, but it was that was really good. So, like, let's start with this idea of talking about Moralism and Orc Zwingli and his part in that and his championship of this particular worldview. And in thinking about this, let me can I is it fair can I share like a couple things about Zwingli in particular that I think set the context for why yes. Okay. All right. So, here's the thing. Oric Zwingli, I would say and I don't think I'm alone in this. I'm not going out in like any unchartered territory. I would say he's considered like the most important reformer of like the Swiss reformation of his day. Right. And probably like the most important until the arrival of John Calvin. And he started a revolution in religious thought in Switzerland that I would say was like parallel to the work that Martin Luther did in Germany. And so what's interesting to me is his father was wealthy enough that he was able to gain a first rate education almost by any standard. So he earned a bachelor's degree in 1504. He earned a master's degree in 1506 degrees from the University of Vienna. And after college, he was ordained to the priesthood in the Roman Catholic church, which I think is something that's significant. And many people in our day forget about him. Yes. And so he actually wrote 67 theses of his own in 1523 in which he rejected many of the medieval beliefs, such as like forced fasting, clerical celibacy, purgatory, the mass, the priestly meditation. And while he was still a priest, and I love this about him because this is his personality. While he was yet immersed in the Roman Catholic tradition, he married the widow who was named Anna Reinhard a year before Martin Luther married Katerina von Bora. So Here is a dude that's like a really enigmatic, like very interesting in his own right. And so I I bring all this up because he was one of the persons to champion this idea of the Lord's Supper as a memorial. But I would say he's not the first to have this idea, but he is a unique person and he gave a voice to this idea. And so we often associate him with this particular perspective.
1: Yeah. And you know, last week we talked a lot about how Luther's view is kind of defined over and against the Roman Catholic view. Yes, And Zwingli's view in a lot of ways uh, sort of follows a similar kind of track, except Zwingli's view ends up being defined over and against Luther's view. Right. So it is the case that Zwingli and Luther, at least according to Zwingli's account, now who knows whether it's true, who can even understand them? um, (laughs) Zwingli claims... He, his claim is that he did not have access to Luther's views when he yes. was developing his theology. Yes. And we don't have any real good reason other than the fact that it like they're so strikingly similar. We don't have any good reason to discredit that account. So Zwingli's view on justification, on scripture as the sole authority, or as the, the chief authority in the Christian life, um, the final authority in the Christian life, his views and Luther's views are really kind of developing in parallel parallel to each other, not cross-pollinating. But when it comes to the theology of the Lord's Supper, they cross-pollinate in pretty heavy ways. And so Zwingli is looking at the scriptures, he's looking at Luther's view, he's looking at the the Roman Catholic view, and he's making all of the same criticisms and concerns that we talked about last week when we talked about both the the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation and the Lutheran view, which is commonly called consubstantiation. And that criticism is is that it confuses the attributes of each discrete nature within Christ and communicates them to each other rather than to the person. And so Zwingli develops his view with an eye towards keeping those things distinct. And the error, as we'll see, that he goes into is rather than just keeping them distinct, he actually bifurcates them and separates them entirely. And so in order to preserve this distinction between the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ in the incarnation, rather than try to explain how that occurs within the supper and how that occurs with Christ's body being present, which is, is how Luther goes. He, he tries to explain how it is that the bread remains bread and the body is added to it. And then Calvin comes around kind of behind Zwingli, and we'll talk about this probably next week when we deep dive into sort of the reformed view the, or Calvin's view. Right. Zwingli, instead of trying to explain that, he says the body's not present at all. So yes. what what we have on the what we have on uh, on in the elements is just bread and is just wine. So you can kind of characterize it this way. In the Roman Catholic view, you no longer have bread, you no longer have wine, you only have the body and blood of Christ. In the Lutheran view, you have both bread and body and both blood and wine. And yes. in the Zwinglian view, you no longer have you no longer have body or blood. You just right. have bread and wine. And I want to read something because You know, it's very vogue to sort of attribute the memorialist view, and I've even kind of hinted at this a little bit. It's not entirely accurate to call Zwingli's view a real strict memorialism. Um, Zwingli is a complicated theologian who's not, he's not writing systematically. We don't have the same kind of like, big systematic thought process that you do with someone like Calvin. We don't necessarily have the large corpus of works that we do with somebody like a Luther, who, although he doesn't write a systematic theology, we just have so much of his work uh, that we can kind of synthesize what his systematic theology would be. So with Zwingli, we can't always expect him to be entirely consistent. So it's not accurate to call his view what we later call memorialism. But- what he does argue, and this is what this is what Calvin latches onto, this is what uh, Luther actually latches onto. both of them say this is wrong. Um, this is actually out of Bovink. So some of this is Bovink's um, su- summary of what what uh, Zwingli teaches and some of it is is a quotation from Zwingli itself himself. So Zwingli writes, "To eat the body of Christ spiritually, is nothing other than to rest in one spirit and mind in the compassion and goodness of God through Christ. And then this is, uh, summary of what that means. And those who thus partake of Christ through faith and then come to the Lord's supper also partake of him there sacramentally in the signs of bread and wine in the Lord's supper. Accordingly, we confess our faith and express what Christ continually means to us by faith and what we enjoy of him. We do this in remembrance of Christ to proclaim and give thanks for his benefits. So, so if you break that all down, what that means Zwingli at the end of the day, the Lord's supper is, simply is what faith is. There's no real difference between what he means when he says trusting in Christ by faith and what he means when he says partaking of the Lord's Supper. Those two things are exactly the same thing in his view. The Lord's Supper is one particular peculiar way of expressing and having faith in Christ. But at the end of the day, it's not a distinct act from having faith. Uh, than it is just to have faith itself. And that is an important distinction to make because the memorial view at the end of the day, uh, what becomes the memorial view, which follows after Zwingli, and I think probably takes it somewhere. Zwingli probably would not have gone entirely. I think he wants to retain that sacramental unity between the sign and that's what signifies. Um, The memorial view that comes later and what's probably the most common view in, in sort of broader evangelicalism now simply is just this is me saying something to god this is a statement yes. that i make maybe maybe primarily to those around me and to myself and secondarily i make this this sort of proclamation to god i commit this confession to god it's almost like a it's almost like the acted out version of the altar call right the altar call is the acted out conversion experience and the the lord's supper is kind of this acted out repeated uh, reaffirmation of that conversion experience i don 't know that Zwingli would go there, but he does make the two so synonymous that it makes sense how that view kind of comes out of his or get, how his view gets used to justify that kind of view later on I think the I'm episode's pausing. over
0: isn't it <laughs> yeah, I think so at that point. I was pausing because that was so good that 's exactly what i was was thinking and was um, wanting to articulate myself. I think we need to recall that the single most important division between Luther and the reformed streams remains the Lord's Supper. And that divide has its roots, actually, in the disagreement between Zwingli and Luther about how to interpret Christ's words, this is my body, which is what you were saying. Right. Luther insisted on a literal interpretation by claiming that the supper contains the real presence of Jesus' body. And then you have Zwingli in contrast, who believe that the church was the body of Jesus. So when the church participated in the common bread and cup, it was formed into Jesus' own body. Something mystical did happen, but it happened to the people, not to the bread. And so the quote unquote is in this, this is my body was then more symbolic pointing to what happens as the church takes the meal. And I think actually, I I think you're right on the mark. Like most of what I would say, I would classify as like modern evangelicalism has distinctly a moralistic bent to it. That is like, that becomes the dog rather than the tail. And Zwingli did not see like this need for like some kind of sacramental union in the Lord's Supper because of his understanding of the sacraments. He threw off this huge display of extravagant absurdity and unintelligible mysticism, which from a very early period had been gathering around the subject of the sacraments and which had reached its full height, I would say in the authorized doctrine of the church of Rome. So like we said before, these men are subjects of their time. They're influenced by what's happening here. And so he's pushing against that in its entirety. And I'd say that he probably throws out some of the baby with the bath water, but I think it's unfair to say, well, he was just like completely concerned with making this like some kind of intellectual reflection of the fact that our memory of that God had done this thing through Jesus Christ, because Zwingli's denial of the quote unquote real presence did not result in neglecting of the sacrament that would characterize many of his, I would say like fellow followers in the centuries to come. He saw virtues in the Lord's supper that proved its importance for the Christian life. And some of that was a representation of the elements in the body and the blood. So it's, it's not as if to say, like, I think you're being really fair and charitable to him in the sense that like Zwingli wasn't like, we need to destroy everything. Also, can I just say, can we agree? Can you and I agree upon the fact that like Zwingli was a bit of a like the rogue dude, like he wanted to smash everything. Yeah. And he wanted to pull so far away from the Roman Catholic tradition that in some extent he was trying to prove a point that like, just don't get involved with this nonsense. It's it's so far away from what the scriptures teach that I want to destroy it all. Even though what he's saying is, in destroying it, I'm not saying to throw out everything. I'm just saying you need to pull away from that paradigm completely.
1: Yeah, and you know, Zwingli Zwingli falls a little bit into in this at least in this particular area, and I, I've read some arguments that it extends into other parts of his theology. Although I haven't I haven't seen that personally, he falls into a little bit of a sort of a dualism where he he holds up the spirit and not not like the spirit capital spirit right, but spirit right, and and physicalness or body spirit and flesh he holds these as utter antitheses yes. so they're they're totally opposed to each other and so for for zwingli he actually ends up in a very similar place to where like the gnostics or the docetists do in reference to Christ's incarnation itself where where to say like well there the, there's a contrast between spiritual and physical that's so Hundred percent. It's so complete that to to sort of posit that the physicalness of Christ and the spiritualness of Christ are somehow both present in the supper is antithetical to everything that he kind of taught. Yes, and I think that's part of the issue that we run into is that the sacraments themselves are actually, and this is the blessing of, of God in this, the sacraments themselves actually allow us to bridge that gap between our sort of so-called spiritual senses and our physical senses, right? One of the things we talked about when we talked about the second commandment and the, the traditional Reform view on it is this dissatisfaction with plain spiritual things, right? right. We, we want to have our senses pleased. We want to have our senses sort of tickled. And so we crave visual idols or we crave some sort of demonstrative worship that's not sanctioned by the scriptures. And the blessing of the sacraments is that it is actually a visible sign and a, sen- a sensual, and I don't mean that in like the lurid sense, but it's a sensual experience in that God actually engages our corporeal, physical senses in the Lord's Supper, in order to bridge that gap between our physical and our sort yes. of spiritual senses, right? On. And so for Zwingli, he kind of casts that out and says, like, no, that's not what's going on in the Supper. Right. And one of the things that um, I think is a fair criticism of him is that this just doesn't comport with what the Scriptures teach, right? right. The Scriptures argue that the Lord's supper is so significant of a thing that to improperly discern the Lord's body in the supper actually led to sickness and death in the Corinthian church. So to simply say like this is a memorial or this is one of the ways we express faith actually led to like the physical death of the saints, which is what Paul seems to be saying in 1 Corinthians 11. 11? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11. Yes, seems like that's not quite a full comprehension of what that passage argued. And of course, this is this is as you said, this is the single the single most divisive issue uh, within the Reformation parties. It's not really so much of a divisive issue in the Reformed churches now, or even among evangelicals and Reformed. There's not a lot of fighting going on about you know what the Lord's Supper is. We all kind of acknowledge those other views, and we're okay with that. But in, in the Reformation, and this is something that we as you know 21st century Christians with with hundreds of different denominational choices don't get, is that this first generation of Reformers came out of a situation where if they were really well-read, they might understand that the church had split in 1054. They might right. have some semblance of understanding of the Great Schism, probably did. But this idea of sort of this splintered church that comes about Honestly, as a result of the Reformation, it really is a, a consequence of the Reformation. It's not something that that we should sort of like revel in, but it's a reality that all of these different denominational right. views come about because there's no real strict centralized authority who kind of holds it all together. Um, that was inconceivable for these first and second generation reformers. And so Zwingli and Luther come together at the Marburg Colloquy And they agree on something like 15 out of 16 points that they brought to the colloquy. And the one point they could not agree on was, and it seems nitty, like really nitty gritty. We look back at it now and we're like, that seems like such a small thing to disagree on. And maybe it was, but they obviously didn't think so. It was this physical corporeal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. And it, it may be apocryphal, although it fits with Luther's personality. There's a story that... Kind of the parting shot that Luther had at this colloquy is, you know, he keeps on just repeating this is my body. This is my blood. Right. He just keeps yes. on repeating it. And Zwingli apparently is trying to like explain to him, you know, like, well, you know, like sometimes the, the, the scripture uses similes. It uses these figures of language and apparently Luther takes out his knife and carves into the table, hoc es ma'am corpus, right? This is my body. Right. And that, that really solidified the division between the Lutheran and the reformed churches that would never fully heal. I mean, we have, we have fairly good relationships with Lutherans now, like, Like we're not trying to kill each other like they were sometimes in the Reformation, but this really cemented the fact that there was going to be different Protestant bodies. Um, You know, there's some speculation that had Luther lived longer or Zwingli lived longer that Calvin maybe could have brought them together. Historically that didn't pan out, but this was a really big deal for them at the time.
0: Right. Yeah. I agree with you. Maybe we should add to our, I think we, we've at some point create a collection of sayings that could be bumper stickers Based on what you just said, I think one of those should be go and hug a Lutheran. Yeah. seems like the kind of thing that we would advertise, but I'm with you. Like according to Zwingli, the sacraments, serve. it's, a, let me say it this way. In thinking about the fact that we were going to record this, there are many parts of what Zwingli is emphasizing that appeal to me, because I think that they appeal to the sense of what the scriptures are trying to emphasize for us in our own Christian walk. And so according to Zwingli, the sacraments serve as a public testimony of a previous grace. I think we would agree with that. The question is how far you take that. So the sacrament, in his view, at least was a sign of a sacred thing. That is, it's a grace that has been given. And so for Zwingli, the idea that the sacraments carry any salvific efficacy in themselves is a return to Judaism's ceremonial washings that lead to the purchase of salvation. It's almost as ridiculous as saying, well, just as a birth certificate indicates that you were born, it has no power to bring forth birth in and of itself. Right. And so Luther and Zwingli differed in their approach to what it is uh, as to reform the Lord's Supper. And so whereas Luther sought to prune these like bad branches off the tree of Rome, Roman Catholicism, this idea of like sacramentalism, Zwingli the problem to be rooted at, at least partly in sacramentalism itself And so the only way to legitimately resolve Roman Catholic excess was to reinterpret the nature of the sacraments. So pruning the tree was not enough. Pulling the tree up by its roots was the only action that could actually fix the problems. And so you see these men approach it from totally different perspectives. And so in some points, I see that in modern evangelicalism, we want to emphasize this idea of memorialism but I don't think, at the cost of trying to emphasize that when you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, that there is, in a sense, there's something beyond just a reflection or an intellectualism with respect to the idea that yes, Jesus died on the cross. There's something more than that. So, like, as as we're engaging and trying to evaluate these arguments, I guess my question, and I want to hear your perspective on this, is. How far do we take that? So without getting into like the reformed tradition, are we saying that, I think what we're saying is that Zwingli took it way too far, but the question is like, how far is too far?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we talked about how the Lutheran view in our view and and in Calvin's critique and the, the critique of the reformed tradition as a whole Luther's view collapses into a kind of monophysis, monophysitism, or Eutychianism. That was where, well said, right there. Thanks. Where, yeah, it was it was <laughs> tricky. Um, where the the body and blood of the Lord being present in the sacrament corporally yes. means that there's a confusion between the two natures of Christ. That the, that Absolutely. The attributes of one nature are communicated to the other, and we'd say that's that's too far in the wrong in one direction. But Zwingli in his zeal, which is kind of a good description of just about everything that Zwingli did was zealous. In his zeal to push against that, he actually goes too far to the other side. And he so divides the person of Christ into physical and spiritual that he actually ends up falling in this particular area. I don't know if this extends to the rest of his theology. Like I said, I've heard arguments that it does. I'm not sure I'm convinced, but it goes so far to the side of dividing the spiritual and physical in Christ that it collapses into a form of Nestorianism. Yes, right where on. his divine nature, his spiritual nature, and not just his divine nature, right? His His spiritualness of his, even his human nature and his physicalness of his human nature are so divided from each other that they're, it's almost like there's nothing that's connecting them anymore.
0: Yes. And yes. so that
1: that's the correction that we'll, we'll see Luther brings is he wants to say, we really truly are communing with the whole Christ, right? That, that's a concept that's really important in Calvin, the whole Christ. We get everything that Christ is, we get when we are united to him and that we'll talk about it next week. We'll go into more detail, but that the totus Christus, the whole Christ is really, really critical. And so Calvin looks at it and he says, well, no, Zwingli, what you're doing is you're saying we're only getting part of Christ in the supper. We're only communing with him spiritually in the supper, and we can't divide Christ spiritually from Christ physically. So I want to read something out of Calvin here. He doesn't say, he doesn't specifically call out Zwingli in this, but I think he probably has this view in mind. This This is from Institute's book four, chapter 17, and it's section seven, he says, I am not satisfied with the view of those who, while acknowledging that we have some kind of communion with Christ, only make us partakers of the spirit, omitting all mention of flesh and blood, as if it were said to no purpose at all, that his flesh is meat indeed, and his blood is drink indeed, that we have no life unless we eat that flesh and drink that blood and so forth. Therefore, it is evident that full communion with Christ goes beyond their description, which is too confined. And then he goes on later, and we'll talk about it next week. But he goes on later to explain his view, kind of in light of that. And I think, I think that Calvin is right here. Is that Calther? Calther? Calvin is agreeing with Luther (laughs) in saying that when Christ says, this is my body and this is my flesh, and in John, when he says, no one shall have life except those that eat of me, my body is true food, my, my blood is true drink. When he says those things, he's not just making it up. He's not just using a figure of speech. But he wants to say that Luther doesn't go far enough in understanding that this communion is not merely physical. It's not merely a matter of physical consumption. And of course, Luther wouldn't say that necessarily, but Luther is so concerned to emphasize the real corporeal presence of Christ in the supper that it's almost as though that's all there is. It's almost as though we're just munching on a piece of Jesus. And that's all that's going on in the supper is that it's almost like a magical experience where like you, and and that kind of gets to what we talked about with the Roman Catholic view. Like it's, it ends up being a form of like practical cannibalism and cannibalism usually comes from the fact, not that Lutherans are cannibals or Roman Catholics are cannibals, But cannibalism itself has this idea that by consuming the flesh of a person, you somehow gain their power. And there are there are definitely hints of that perspective that sort of come into the Lutheran view and the Roman Catholic view, that it's somehow by physically taking Christ into our body that God's grace is communicated to us. For sure. Right? They're, they're, not, they're not cannibals in that sense. They're not they're not taking it in some magical view, but they are arguing that by physically taking the body and blood of Christ into our own bodies, that we are somehow gaining a special, a special measure of grace that we would not gather otherwise. And Zwingli's responding to that. And I think it's understandable why he responds the way he does, because that is a major abuse in the Roman Catholic church. It's a major source of confusion in the Eastern Orthodox church. And it's something that honestly, I don't think the Lutheran church went far enough in reforming, but right. Luther, uh, Cal swingly in a lot of ways, just swings that pendulum way too far yes. against the abuse of a thing, not recognizing that somewhere in the middle there, not in some sort of like golden mean Hegelian model, but somewhere in the middle there, some synthesis of the two actually suffices to account for the biblical data to give us that true communion that Calvin's getting at with the whole Christ, not just physically, not just spiritually.
0: Right. Um, I'm right with you. I hope that I mean, the reason why we wanted to undertake this whole series was at least to challenge people to be able to articulate what it is that they understand is happening in the Lord's Supper and if you're listening to this and thinking wow there's there's all these different perspectives and maybe i haven't given an appropriate amount of time to process or understand or to weigh them against the scriptures i think that's okay in the sense that like There's a lot right now in just kind of modern evangelicalism that would say like, this is more or less like an innocuous event. Like we do it and we do it with some kind of regularity and there's something about it that we know is part of our tradition, but we don't really know what's happening and it's okay to fall under this umbrella of mysticism. But the question really be, well, what's mystic about it and how do we understand it? And so I hope that in the course of us trying to introduce this conversation, you yourselves are having other ancillary conversations in which you're trying to process and would be able to explain even to like a non-Christian what it is that you're doing when whenever you participate in the Lord's Supper, you're participating in it. And so I think that hopefully if nothing comes out of this, it's going to be some kind of spurring on of people to really process what's happening. So there's a lot to think about here. And I think we have wonderfully like reasonable listeners. So I hope they're going to listen to this and they're going to go and look to the scriptures and they're going to weigh these different perspectives that we're talking about. And I I know that we have people that are like wonderful and really like strong and discerning listeners. So they're probably seeing how we're like building these arguments or we're going through the different worldviews. And so I hope that they're seeing that we're moving towards something. We're working in that direction. I actually, I have no doubt that they are. And so I hope that this has been helpful in people being able to process a certain maybe facet of theology that has been underemphasized or is in a bear market. Come and embrace this. Like if you can't express what's happening on the Lord's day, when you partake of the Lord's supper, that is a problem because this is one of the sacraments that we're saying is like pivotal is important is this is central to the Christian expression of like true Christian religion and so I would say if we can't articulate this well then we're actually doing a disservice to ourselves and to the Lord Jesus Christ so let's get after this loved ones let's really yeah. understand what's happening here and let's be able to express it to those who are around us in the family of God and those who are outside the family
1: yeah. So so this has been uh I think a good discussion on the subject. I'm excited to kind of keep going next week on the, the Reform viewer
0: Calvin. I Pro- really thought you were going to say definitive.
1: No, I don't know if it's definitive <laughs> yet. We still have more to say in order for it to be definitive. But I mean
0: like the definitive perspective on Zwinglianism. I'm yeah. Yeah.
1: I could go there. This is the definitive Zwinglianism episode. <laughs> I don't actually think I've ever heard another podcast that did a full episode on Zwinglianism, so we may really? actually
0: be there on this one. But so let me ask, let me ask this. Like, sorry, I'm interrupting you. I'm I'm curious, like, I, I, so I'm just going to come out and say something that I've only, it's only been in my head, oh, but my I've head. suspected. Do you think like the modern evangelical, like kind of the baseline perspective is moralism and Zwinglism without even knowing it?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I, I think most people, if you ask them what most people in broader evangelicalism, for sure, um, but I can remember even as a, as a person being confirmed in Lutheranism, um, I, I was, I was under the impression that this was mostly just a symbol of, of what was going on. And I remember one time I, 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 I've mentioned before that I, for a short time, I actually had decided to convert to Roman Catholicism. Right. And at the same time, I was still helping lead these youth camps at a, it wasn't a Lutheran church per se, but had Lutheran, more or less Lutheran theology, and I remember at one point we were doing communion at camp and some one of the kids had like spilled communion juice and yeah. I went and got a paper towel to like wipe it up and the pastor was like, and I kind of was like, I held on to the Patal because I wanted to ask him, well, what do we do with this afterwards? We'll talk about this when we get to kind of the grab bag episode, I think. But one of the outflows of a lot of this theology is, is what you actually do with the elements in, in various circumstances. Yes. And I remember I, I said to him, like, well, what do we do? with What's the proper way to dispose of this after you know, something like this happens? He goes, well, you just throw it in the garbage. And I said, well, but this is this is the blood of Christ. like the, And I was coming at it from sort of this sort of Roman Catholic leaning of thinking this was actually really like almost transubstantiation level kind of veneration. Not quite there, but I was sort of leaning that direction. And, and I was like, what do you mean? This is the blood of Christ. He's like, well, it's a symbol of the blood of Christ, but it's just grape juice. Right. And this was a Lutheran pastor, right? Who, who had been a minister in a Lutheran church for many right. years. He was now the pastor of an evangelical covenant church, which is broadly speaking, has Lutheran tendencies. And he just said, well, it's just a symbol. So, so there are definitely a lot of people out there, even in other traditions that don't hold classically to a memorialist view, who more or less view the sacrament as just a symbol. And I think even within the reformed world, because we'll find out Calvin's view is kind of weird and complicated, like it's not really a straightforward, simple view um Calvin is so clear and so articulate in so many other things but in this one area he can be kind of hard to understand. I think people default to this idea that there's this binary reality that either it's really blood and really body and blood right. or it's not at all it's right. not at all anything besides Exactly. Uh, besides you know bread and juice or bread and wine or whatever There's no intermediate state. There's no intermediate position for most people because it's so complicated. They default to, well, we know it's not actually physically body and blood, so it must just be a symbol. And what Calvin is going to say, we'll find out, sneak peek, spoiler alert, whatever. The fact that it is a symbol is what's so significant. And I didn't mean to use the word significant, but it's kind of ironic that I did. It's okay. The sign (laughs) itself is what unites us to Christ by faith. And so so it it becomes this really important thing to understand that it's not a physical reality, it's not purely a spiritual reality, right. but it it's something else entirely. To even say that it exists between Zwingli's view or between Lutheran and Memorial View isn't even accurate. And yes. Bavink actually gets at that. It's it exists above and kind of beyond either of those binary views, it's sort different of a totally plane. different third thing. So I think you're right that this is a, this Memorial view really is kind of the default position that a lot of, a lot of even reformed people have. And that that's yes. really troubling because it's funny. And then we'll, we'll wrap up because we're on like hour two of this one hour podcast. Um, <laughs> it's funny because when I first kind of came into a self-awareness that I was a reformed Christian, you know, I came in sort of through this weird perspective where I was just reading the Bible and coming to conclusions. And it wasn't until later that I realized that all my conclusions were basically the same as the Westminster Confession. But I was, I was coming into this sort of conscious awareness that I was a Calvinist or a Reformed Christian. And I mentioned to one of my theology professors that I was just getting to Calvin's institutes for the first time. And he kind of chuckled and said, what do you mean you've never read the, how can you call yourself a Calvinist if you've never read the institutes? And there's <laughs> yeah. something to that. Right. Is there's so many people who call themselves reformed or consider themselves to be Calvinist Christians who've never really spent time investigating what it is that the reformed tradition holds. That's that's why, you know, Calvin's Institutes is a beast. Like it's it's not easy to read through that whole thing. It can be very complicated. But the Westminster Confession is only 30, you know, 31 chapters. The catechisms are very easy to work your way through. And this this theology is articulated in pretty clear ways. So I would I would say most people who are reformed or say they're reformed have never investigated these in depth. And because of that, they sort of default to the non Roman Catholic view, which they understand to mean is a purely symbolic or purely sort of confession oriented, my confession of faith oriented view of the supper. And that just really isn't, isn't in line with the broader reform tradition.
0: So I take it. We don't need to record next week because let's just just basically, (laughs) Yeah, I love that you laid out the entire, well, you gave a great primer for primer. the reformed view. You love I love that, that word. Listen, I love that word. I also love the word rotary, which I feel like is like entirely New England, just it's for the true. record. Like you, I noticed you say primer. I say primer. How do you yeah. feel about that? I, I don't know. It seems like primer is the right word. I feel like I also right say word. bagel
1: and you say bagel. So
0: <laughs> wait a second. Do you, but I, I think we talked about this last time. You don't actually say bagel, right? Like no. when you go and order a bagel, you don't say like, give me like an everything bagel. Do you?
1: Yeah. I say, what I actually Are you say serious? is, what I say is, can I please have one jalapeno <laughs> cream cheese, Well, jalapeno <laughs> cheddar bagel toasted with extra plain cream cheese. And okay. actually I say two usually, but For I do say record, bagel. And you know what? Not once has anyone at the bagel store looked at me and go, "What?
0: Do you mean bagel?" But, but, but listen, "Do you mean that's bagel?" Be- that's because you're paying. You're about to give them money.
1: No, no, no. But if they didn't understand what I was ordering, <laughs> they would ask me for clarification.
0: Well, listen, they would be like, "This is a bagel store." He clearly got the lo- wrong emphasis on the vowel. That's okay. I understand what he wants. I'm pretty sure that's what. I'm-. But no. for the record, can I just say, "This is, this the is, the last is like a delicious of our show, Jesse." That that's a- listen, we We're had a great done. run. I'm okay with that. This was great. Honor everyone. Eat a bagel. (laughs) But um, that sounds like a delicious, absolutely delicious bagel. I would eat that. I didn't know that you were down with the spicy. I thought you were not as down with the spicy. I like spicy. Okay.
1: I mean, I want to like have some like semblance of taste after I'm done, but.
0: Well, no, no, no. Listen, spicy is only good in so much as it's flavorful. I don't need capsation. Like I don't want it to be like, you know, just straight tear gas on my bagel. But I'm saying like there should be some flavor. <laughs> <sighs> I've never heard you use that though, actually, like in person, but maybe we've never actually partaken yeah, of bagels think... together. Is that possible? I don't think we have. Gonna, we need to change that. All
1: right. No, nobody cares about any of this, Jesse. We should, <laughs> we should wrap it up here.
0: Actually, here's the thing. This is what I've learned of us doing like, what is it, 211 podcasts uh, now? I've learned that the thing that we think will trigger people will never actually be that thing. That's it's a side conversation. That's the kind of thing we'll get feedback on. We'll get like a, it's like half dozen emails on people will be passionate about how we pronounce bagel or bagel. All this theology, they'll be like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. How did you say the word bagel?
1: I would just like, you know, I want to throw it out there that everyone who agrees with me about how to say Bagel should do something. But in reality, <laughs> I just don't care. I know that this is the right way to pronounce the word. No. And that's, it doesn't matter.
0: Does, it doesn't is this a matter. Midwest thing? Is that no, how your I people? I don't think
1: even people in the Midwest, although it's funny, I did hear Scott Schultz on Reformed Pilgrims the other day said soda pop. He's from Iowa, I
0: think. Yeah,
1: and it just warmed my Minnesota heart to hear someone call it soda pop.
0: But but here's the thing: when you say soda and you say the word pop, you're pronouncing those correctly. I don't have any issue with like you using a different terminology. Yeah,
1: and when I say bagel, I'm pronouncing that correctly too. (laughs)
0: I don't know. Already, we're going to get tons of feedback on this, and I'm going to love it. So I'll just let the listeners weigh in. I just invented a new
1: meme, and I'm going to describe it because I have really terrible photo editing skills. All
0: right, let's see. I
1: would like to have somebody take the meme that has Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, and he's got the sign that says Bazinga. And I want someone to Photoshop Zwingli's face onto (laughs) that, and I want the sign to say... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what the meme is used for, but it's a that's a million dollar idea, Jesse.
0: Yeah, that's great. Listen, we've done that before. We've had lots of great ideas and we, this is free of charge again. We yes. just let people absorb these ideas and take them and use them for their own profit and leverage. That's what we do. You're yeah. welcome, people.
1: Well, Jesse, before we wrap up, uh, I want to just remind people: we do want to do a question cast specifically on yes. the Lord's Supper.
0: Thank so you for saying this.
1: Send in your emails. Uh, we're gonna. We always privilege voicemails because. I mean, you guys are probably, especially now after like an hour and 15 minutes, are sick of hearing our voices, but we want right. to get other voices on the show. So Jesse, I'm going to put you on the spot and you're probably going to forget it. But do you remember oh, the phone no. number?
0: No, don't do this to me. <laughs> I actually have, I have to pull it up. I have, don't even, let's not even do it. All right. Just give the number. Question cast is canceled. Just kidding. So
1: <laughs> the phone number is six zero six zero seven four 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 two seven six seven. And that spells gonna out, say, I was going to say 603. I was. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And that it spells, spells out Jesse bros. Bros. So call and leave your voicemails with questions about the Lord's supper. Uh, you know, whether it's questions <laughs> about any aspect of this clarifications on anything we've said yes. or questions that have come up that we haven't addressed. We love to hear uh, listener questions. We love to answer listener questions. Yes. And also, you know, if you, if you don't have, if you're outside of the U S we have listeners on every continent, Um, Feel free to record an MP3 or a WAV file and email it to us or send your question the good old-fashioned way in in like text characters or whatever uh, to info at reformbrotherhood.com. And we'll put those together and put together a question cast specifically on the Lord's Supper. Yes,
0: that's so good. I meant to say that. And can I also add, before we close this thing out for real— That please send, this is giving you license and excuse. If you have like a question that you think is like quote unquote embarrassing or you like to ask, like, for instance, I'm just going to say something totally off the mark. Is there special power in selecting the communion cup that's in the center of the tray? (laughs) Ask that question. That's, that's okay. Like this is the place to say, like, can I have, I'm going to borrow something from you like Doritos and Coke as communion This is why we're throwing it out there. Let's all have this conversation where we ask all the questions we've forever wanted to ask. Yes. It's a safe place. It's very safe.
1: So Jesse, now that we have both run (laughs) our course on this episode, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.